brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Now we turn to the reading of the Hazard Herald for news of Hazard in Perry County. I'm Lee Townsend. We begin with the online edition dated January 25th, 2024. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Inclement weather and freezing temperatures impact water lines countywide by Justin Begley. Severe weather conditions have resulted in widespread water outages for approximately 2,000 residents, a situation that city maintenance teams are urgently addressing, officials reported during a January 22nd Special Hazard City Commission meeting. Mayor Donald Happy Mobellini provided an update on the crisis. We've got about 2,000 people without water right now, he said. At one point last night, we thought the entire county might be without water. Our crews have been working around the clock since pretty much December. The mayor acknowledged the challenges faced due to the aging infrastructure. Our system is old, Mobellini said, not making excuses. It's a fact. We're trying to replace it as we can. The people know we've received grants, but we don't have the money from those grants yet. We've not even got to bid them out yet. With the projects we've applied for, it should get better, but it's going to take time. Mobellini said the extreme weather conditions contributed to the problem. I checked today and we had 12 days below freezing temperatures during December, he said. We've had 18 days below freezing in January. We almost made it through this until this past weekend. Focusing on the critical areas, Mobellini said, Liberty Street Tank is probably the lowest I've ever seen. We have a lot of water lines. We run them 38 miles in one direction and 39 miles in another. Our main focus is the hospital tank. Nobody will ever have water if it goes dry. We're not to the point where we've shut anybody off, but our number one priority is keeping water for the hospital. Mobellini praised the efforts of the city maintenance staff. I was talking to Benny Chandler, maintenance supervisor. Him and the water crews and maintenance department both have worked 85 to 95 hours last week. We've had 15 men out here in these holes with water going everywhere, and it's four or five degrees outside. We've got some great employees, he said. The mayor also discussed the logistical challenges in restoring water supplies. If you're at the top of a mountain or the end of the line, it's going to take longer for you to get water, Mobellini said. If you're 39 miles from here, obviously it will take more time to get there. But I'm very proud of the men and women we've got out here working on this. 
We're trying to put it out there on the social media with updates as well as we can. Mobilini shared his personal experience with the water outage. Personally, we haven't had water in two days. It's going to get better, but it's not going to get better overnight, he stated. Mobilini said he also spent time at the water plant to support communication efforts. I was at the water plant for four and a half hours today just to help answer phones, he said. We've got three lines that are ringing nonstop. We know people want to know when they're going to get their water back on, but we really can't tell anyone for sure when their water's going to be back on. We don't want to make promises we can't keep, he said. Addressing concerns about the use of grant funds, Mobilini clarified, just for the city, we've been awarded somewhere around $44 million worth of grants, but it's very misleading because we've not received any money from those grants yet. We have people calling and asking what we've done with the money we got, but we haven't gotten any money yet. We haven't even bid it out yet. When we do get funded for these grants, we're going to have a hard time finding people to work. We understand why people are so frustrated. They have a right to be. It's our job to provide that service for them, but we can only do what we can do. Mobilini expressed confidence in the city's efforts. The one thing I feel comfortable about is that we're trying to make a difference, he said. Typical Kentucky Power residential customers bill will increase by 5.66% under PSC order. The Kentucky Public Service Commission announced January 19th that it had issued a ruling in Kentucky Power's request for a rate increase, granted an increase that the PSC said in a statement will result in the typical residential customer's bill rising about 5.66%. The company had originally requested an increase of 18.3%. According to a statement from the PSC, the agency also approved all January 10th, Kentucky Power's request to use a securitization to reduce the financing costs of previously incurred costs. The statement said Kentucky Power's application also included requests for a distribution system cost tracker, tariff name changes, amendments to bill due dates, and a power hedging program, among other items, and initially proposed an annual increase in its electric sale rates of $93.9 million. Public comment hearings were held in Catletsburg, Hazard, Pikeville, and virtually, and the evidentiary hearing in the matter was held November 28th through November 30th. During the pendency of this matter, the statement said, Kentucky Power and certain parties to the case submitted a non-unanimous settlement that reduced the overall revenue increase to $74.67 million. The settlement was reached prior to the evidentiary hearing in the case between Kentucky Power and several intervening parties, Kentucky Industrial Utility Companies, customers, Walmart, Mountain Association, Appalachian Citizens Law Center, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and Kentucky Solar Energy Society. Two other interveners, the Kentucky Office of the Attorney General and the SWVA Kentucky LLC, did not sign but did not object to the settlement. The PSC's order, the statement said, reduced the increase agreed upon in the proposed settlement by an additional $14.63 million. 
Under the rate originally proposed by Kentucky Power in its application, a typical residential customer's bill with an average usage of 1,200 kilowatts would have increased proportionally 18.3% over current rates. Under today's order, a typical residential customer's bill will increase by 5.66% over current rates. In making its decision, the statement said, the PSC found the proposal's impact on residential customers to be excessive and disturbing, in part as evidenced by the comments in the case indicating customers could not afford further rate increases. As part of the order, the statement said, the PSC approved Kentucky Power's proposal to move the due date of bills back six days from 15 to 21 days to allow customers more time to pay once their bills are received each month. The PSC's order denied Kentucky Power's request to begin power hedging programs, which are proposed only because of Kentucky Power's inadequate generation, the statement said, and the order also denied a proposal to add a tracker to recover distribution-related expense between rates. The rates approved by the order took effect January 16th. In a separate order issued January 10th, the PSC approved Kentucky Power's request to finance approximately $470 million in costs through secured bonds pursuant to legislation recently enacted by the Kentucky General Assembly. Based on initial estimates, the statement said, which are subject to change given prevailing market conditions, securitization will result in at least $74.4 million in savings over a 20-year period for customers as compared to letting the utility recover those costs through ordinary rate-making and rates. Securitization includes a months-long process where the utility sells bonds to pay off utility expenses with the bonds backed by and paid for by the Kentucky Power customers. By reducing the interest rates on these costs and by spreading the costs over a longer period, the overall impact on customers is lower than if the utility recovered the costs through rates, the statement said. This process removes any Kentucky Power shareholder return on the $470 million in expenses. When the bonds are successfully completed, customers will see a transparent specified bill line item reflecting the cost to pay off the bonds, the statement said. Lastly, on page one, UPike President, four-year university study welcomed, but some assumptions wrong, by Russ Cassidy. According to University of Pikeville President Burton Webb, the recently released study on whether there should be a four-year state-run university in eastern Kentucky is the beginning of a welcome conversation, but it's not the conclusion. On November 17th, the Kentucky Council on Post-Secondary Education voted to release the findings of the study, which was performed as a result of a Senate resolution sponsored by Senate President Robert Stivers, Republican of Manchester. The study recommended several possible answers to the question, most of which centered on expansion of programs at Hazard Community and Technical College, and even possibly making the school a standalone college or university. Webb said that because this kind of study has not been performed since the gubernatorial administration of Paul Patton, the examination was overdue. 
It was time for a systematic assessment, Webb said. Their desire to focus on Eastern Kentucky because of the transportation issues, that makes perfect sense. Ultimately, he said, the study will help chart the trajectory of the next 20 years of public education in the Commonwealth. Webb said he questions a key part of the report, which used a 45-minute commute as the measurement of need. What I disagree with is the 45-minute radius, he said. A 45-minute radius makes sense for a community college because everyone's driving. If you're going to build a four-year institution, you're going to assume a residential population. In that case, you have to have a two-hour radius, he said. Examining the same area with a two-hour radius means that a four-year institution is not needed, Webb said. In a two-hour radius of Eastern Kentucky, he said, are Eastern Kentucky University, Berea College, U-Pike, and Alice Lloyd. Webb said that the reframing of the question to ask whether there are pockets of Eastern Kentucky in which development from economics would help benefit educational opportunities gives a clearer view of the actual needs. In that case, there's something needed to help drive economic development in the Corbin-Manchester-Hazard area. Nothing drives economic development like a four-year institution, Webb said. Nothing drives economic development like colleges do. That, he said, is a good reason to look at that area. However, he said, increasing competition for students may not have the intended effect. What competition does is it drives down the number of students at each campus, he said. There are a finite number of students who are interested in going to college. If you add another campus, you're going to drive down the number of students at most other colleges. Webb said UPike is an anomaly because more than half of the students are medical students. We're not in any kind of competition with them, he said. In fact, they're educating students for pre-med majors Chances are they're going to come here. The impact, he said, also wouldn't be felt as heavily by institutions such as Berea and Alice Lloyd, which offer free education. Four-year programming, Webb said, is already available at community colleges through Moorhead State University at Big Sandy Community and Technical College and Eastern Kentucky University at Hazard Community and Technical College. Another possibility discussed in the report was that the state possibly buying an existing private university, though the report noted there was little interest on the part of the existing private universities in such a possibility. Webb said another part of the report with which he disagreed was a reference to private schools as expensive. Many UPike students, he said, pay no tuition. For 12 years, undergraduate tuition has been free for students who qualify for the maximum Pell Grant and receive maximum KEES monies. Each year, more than 300 Kentucky students have attended UPike without paying anything for tuition. UPike names new dean of Kentucky College of Optometry. The University of Pikeville has announced that Renee Reeder, OD, was recently appointed the new dean of the Kentucky College of Optometry. Reed began working at UPike in 2018. On completing her residency, the statement said, she joined the faculty of Illinois College of Optometry faculty. During her 21 years at IOC, Reeder served in many roles, including founding coordinator of the Contact Lens Residency Program, chief of the Cornea Center for Clinical Excellence, 
Ocular Disease Curriculum Coordinator and Educational and Technology Committee Chair. Reader resides in Betsy Lane. Her daughter, Rachel, is a 2023 graduate of Pikeville High School and now attends Pfeiffer University in North Carolina. KCTCS website ranks in top 10 lists for 2023. The Kentucky Community and Technical College System website was named to the top 10 list of campus websites for 2023 by Modern Campus, the content management system vendor that sponsored excellence in website design and management awards, according to a statement from KCTCS. Winners were selected from a field of 4,500 higher education websites that use its platform, according to the company's news release. Over a 12-month period, the KCTCS website had over 40 million page views, 916,000 searches, 3.7 million clicks from the searches, and 68 million impressions. UK launches One UK, an innovative holistic business engagement program for strategic partnerships. The University of Kentucky has launched One UK, a holistic business engagement program aimed at deepening relationships with strategic industry partners. According to a statement from UK, One UK marks a significant milestone in the university's commitment to fostering long-term collaborations that drive mutual benefits and maximize impact. University of Kentucky study focuses on child sex trafficking prevention in Kentucky middle schools. A team of researchers at the University of Kentucky continues to advance strategies to prevent child sex trafficking across the Commonwealth through a training program for middle school staff, according to a statement from UK. Strong risk factors for child sex trafficking, the statement said, include a dysfunctional family environment characterized by violence and parental substance abuse. In Kentucky, familial sex trafficking is the most common form. Children at high risk of being sex trafficked are middle schoolers between the ages of 11 and 14. Here are the obituaries. Jackie Burkhart, 78 of Hazard, died Saturday, January 13th. Edgar Couch, U.S. Navy veteran, 83 of Hazard, died Sunday, January 14th. Barbara K. Hall, 71 of Viper, died Saturday, January 13th. Elise M. Roll, 92 of Hazard, died Sunday, January 21st. Melissa Combs, 46 of Hazard, died Wednesday, January 17th. Senior Master Sergeant Lee Dixon, U.S. Air Force retired, died January 18th at his home in Macon, Georgia. Odabe Holcomb, 87, died Thursday, January 18th at Hazard ARH. Lisa Karen Mosley, 61, of Emelina died Thursday, January 18th. From the opinion page, How Bad Is It? by Russ Cassidy. As we enter into what is likely to be one of the most contentious election years in history, the rhetoric is heating up. At the national level, the administration of Democrat Joe Biden is painting a rosy picture of a scrappy U.S. citizenry and economy fighting back from the challenges of recent years and in full recovery mode. This, the left contends, is despite Trump's action, which led the nation on a path to economic ruin. The Republicans, on the other hand, are blaming the Democrats for leading the nation into a historically bad economic standing, one for which 
only they have the cure. Of course, it doesn't take a genius to know that both parties and every recent president and federal legislator owns a piece of this economic malaise. Sure, the lack of a discernible direction by the current administration isn't helping, but they didn't create the problem. We didn't get here in the last three years alone. It's taken years of bad decisions to put us in the position in which we currently find ourselves. So how bad is it? According to the U.S. debt clock, in 2020, the U.S. national debt was somewhere around $27 trillion, equaling out to approximately $244,000 per taxpayer. Today, that debt stands at approximately $34 trillion, or $264,090 per person. The Partisan Truth and Accounting Organization calculates that the actual debt, including unfunded Social Security and Medicaid promises, is $164 trillion or approximately $979,000 per taxpayer. That's the view from the macro level. What about the micro level? According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, reported on January 19th, consumer prices for all items rose 3.4% from December 2022 to December 2023. The steepest rises were in the areas of motor vehicle insurance, 20%, non-prescription drugs, 8%, shelter, 6%, hospital and related services, nearly 6%, and food away from home, 5%. If you bought prescription drugs, you paid 3% more for them in December 2023 than in December 2022. The same goes for electricity. But never fear. The BLS reported on January 11th that the real average hourly earnings rose over the same period by a whopping seven-tenths of a percent. The translation is, you may be making more than you were last year, but inflation likely erased any benefit of it. In fact, it's entirely possible you're actually worse off thanks to the raise you received, especially if tax burden is considered. Both parties and all candidates up for election this year are going to make promises that they'll make things better, that they have the only cure. That's where we come in. It's vital that this election, well, every election actually, we pay attention to not only the promises, but the candidates' actual plans to get us where we need to be. At the legislative level, we have to hold to the fire the feet of those that are elected and seeking to be elected to ensure that they have a plan, that they have an overall philosophy that drives them to seek a better economic policy. Elections have consequences. This year is no different. The stakes this time, however, are different. Fix the Border by Jeff Vanderbeck. Make sure you pay your taxes promptly. There are plenty of illegal immigrants who are counting on you and apparently more on the way. It's harsh to say, but it's also a harsh reality. At the foot of the Statue of Liberty, which to immigrants is a symbol of peace, comfort and compassion are the following words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. 
These words were supposed to bring hope and dreams of a better life to immigrants, and for the most part, it did. When a massive migration started into the U.S., this land was ripe with opportunity. We welcomed all those who chose to live a better life, to enter our country and understand the American way, to better themselves for themselves and their family. However, it was to be done legally. Entering into the U.S. legally and becoming an American citizen has always been and will continue to be our nation's helping hand to those who need to escape tyranny and oppression. Whether that comes from a corrupt government, drug cartels, or extreme poverty, legal entry and becoming an American citizen is an immigrant's dream. In theory, that sounds like rainbows and unicorns. In reality, it's an awful mess that the taxpayers are funding because no one can make policy for border control and legal entry. What is happening at the southern border is people, for many reasons, are crossing illegally. Once in the U.S., they get free health care, education, and other perks. Migrants are paying big dollars to illegal human traffickers to get them across the border, and we are sitting around trying to figure out how to deal with the influx of illegal immigrants while spending tax dollars to keep up with illegal crossings. Some lawmakers are not going to vote for closing the border because there's a human element, which we all get. People can't choose the circumstances in which they're born. Hell, I wanted to be a Vanderbilt, but the cards didn't fall that way. Those same lawmakers also want due process for illegal migrants because our Constitution allows specific freedoms and rights. The irony is that illegal immigrants are not U.S. citizens and have no constitutional rights as American citizens and therefore should be denied access, due process, and the rights which our Constitution allows. The harsh reality is illegal immigrants should be sent back to their country until the time comes when they can enter legally and become American citizens. There are many stories of how many people fled the oppressed country, came to legal Americans, and flourished. There are also stories of those who enter illegally and flourished. And then there are the stories of the illegals who come here, deal drugs, and continue their law-breaking habits and they expect taxpayers to support their illegal efforts. The Democrats want to tell the stories of those people who migrated illegally and flourished in this country in an effort to keep the border open. The Democrats think there are good people on the other side. In the words of President Trump, there are good people on both sides, but that's not really the case. If I were running against Trump, I would bring up that famous saying when he described the illegal activity in Charlottesville during a white nationalist rally. He claimed there were very fine people on both sides. Very fine people don't break the law, and good people don't use their constitutional right to assemble with the pretense of starting a riot. There are not good people protesting on either side in Charlottesville that faithful day, and while there may be good people looking to escape oppression, doing it illegally is breaking the law. When people break the law, are they still considered good? Somehow, solid border policy needs to be devised. It needs to be simple and concise. A border bill should be just that, a bill that deals with immigration and immigration only. We don't need a document with thousands of pages no one will read dealing with China, Ukraine, Israel, or any other issues. 
just border control. Unless, of course, some genius wants to slip in terms on page 2000, which no lawmaker will read anyway. We see images and read the desperate plight of people fleeing their country for a better life. While we want to offer a better life to legal immigrants, we can't do that without a solid border control policy. And so far, no side has the answer. So to me, there are not good people on both sides. Thanks for reading the Hazard Herald. This concludes the reading of the Hazard Herald. Please stay tuned for continued programming. Thank you for joining me, and on behalf of everyone here at Radio I, this is Lee Townsend wishing you a good day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.